0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. We are, as I said earlier, we are continuing here our study in Hebrews, and we're going to be in chapter 4, as Rick just shared. I want to remind you, maybe if you've not been with us uh, the past few weeks, um, Hebrews is a book that we don't know who the author is. Um, and we are, we are very sure that it was written to a group of Jews um, that were claiming to be Christians, and we believe that they many of them were, but some of them probably were struggling uh, to really completely commit to this new faith that they had. They'd grown up in a uh, a world of, of very much works-based and, and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And and they were steeped in all of that, the law and all of that. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am come to fulfill all that. And now he's died and resurrected and and the gospel is spreading and, and these people are struggling. And so this writer, the author here, is writing to these folks um, to these Jews, to, to really encourage them and to remind them who Jesus is, and that He is the fulfillment, and that they need to believe. And so we see that in the first few weeks, of the first few chapters of the letter, he really puts out there, he says, you know, Jesus is, is greater than all things. He is, He's preeminent. He's before all things. And he really just paints this picture of who Jesus is. He says that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. And so he's just really rightly placing Christ in their mind and saying who he is. Now, last week, um, remind you that we we quoted what what the writer does here at the end of chapter three, uh, and we talked about last week. He quotes from a psalm, Psalm ninety five, which we talked about during the announcements, and he quotes just a part of it there. And, and really, he's he's reflecting back. Now, this is King David who wrote this psalm, so King David is writing the psalm, and King David is looking back to the time when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. And what David is saying, and he's he's writing the psalm, and he's kind of heartbroken here. He's saying that their hearts were hard. They did not believe. And so he's encouraging the people of his time when he wrote the psalm that they shouldn't let their hearts get hard, that they should believe. They should not do what their ancestors did. And so now when the author of Hebrews is reflecting back on what David is saying. This is just another way to say, I'm going to bring this up again. I'm going to remind you what King David said in his psalm, that our ancestors let their hearts got hard and, and that they could not enter into God's rest. And we're going to talk about that, what that means. And we looked at that a little bit last week, that, that the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and they were hoping to enter into the promised land, which was a picture of God's rest, of God's rest. Now, before I dive into too much of that, I want to remind you of a couple things that we said last week to kind of get you back to where we were. There at the end of chapter 3 of Hebrews, um, as we're talking about this, the big idea last week was that we have a responsibility, we're responsible to believe. We have a responsibility to believe. God is the one that makes us a new creation. He causes us to be born again. But this incredible mystery that happens when that's happening, God gives us faith. We have a responsibility to believe and, and to let that work in our hearts and to say yes to it. And so then we have to say, well, what does it mean to believe? Right? Because we know that we call it easy believism, that, that we slap, oh, I believe that and I believe that. But yet, really, how do we know, how do we know someone really believes? Well, in Christianity... When we say we believe, it means several things. One, it means that we believe that God is who he says he is. We believe that Jesus really was God in the flesh, really lived, lived sinlessly, really died on a cross some 2,000 years ago, and really was raised from the dead, and, and was really the son of God. Now, you could say, well, I believe that. That's good. But belief does not, that's not fully encompassing belief when it talks about Christian belief. Christian belief now also then says, you now need to trust in that. You, you need to believe it in such a way that you stake your life on that, that that's, you would hold to that. It, it changes your life. It, it determines how you live, all of those things. That belief is now directing and guiding the steps of your life. And so one of the things that we challenge people, and I challenge myself with all the time, is that if you can look at your life and you can say, well, I, 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 um, I'm in willful sin, um, and you know, I don't really care. Um, it's no big deal. I believe in God. I, I came forward and checked a box one day and, and uh, gave my card in. And I got baptized when I was 10 or 20 or 30, whatever, and, and I'm good. Well, I would just say that that's not a biblical view of belief. Now, that's between you and God, but I'm just saying you need to be very careful if, if that's taking place in your life, if you, if you do not have any um, conviction about your sin, if you don't hate your sin, if you're not trying to, to really live holy before the God, you won't do that perfectly. That's what grace is for. But if there's no, what um, the, the Bible would say, sanctification going on in your heart, that you're really being transformed in the image of Christ one day at a time, then, then I don't know that that's really Christian belief. And so here when we say we are responsible to believe, I just want to tell you, it's not intellectual knowledge that I'm saying you're responsible for. It starts there, but really true belief goes way beyond that. And then last week we gave two commands, and there was, we gave a few commands, but I'm going to share two of you. One is that we are commanded not to harden our heart. So we can see King David reminding them in his time, don't harden your hearts. That's a command that David gives in his psalm. Do not harden your hearts as our ancestors did. Because they perished in the wilderness. They died. They did not enter the rest of God. And we'll talk about what that rest is here in a second. And I think that is true for us today. I think when, when the writer of Hebrews is quoting David now, he's saying to the same thing to these Hebrews, do not harden your hearts now. Christ is come. Do not harden your hearts to him. And I think some 2,000 years later, we can say this again as we read this text. Because I think God is telling us, do not harden your hearts today to the gospel to who Christ is. The second thing we were commanded to do is we were instructed to exhort one another. We are instructed to exhort one another. This word exhort we said last week meant to strongly encourage, right, in the faith, to strongly encourage you to walk worthy of the calling that has been given to us as believers. Showing up and, and just worshiping together is one way that we can do that. When we sing together, we're exhorting God, we're exhorting each other. When we have fellowship in the lobby and, and we eat butter-laden waffles and, and cholesterol-filled meat, um, just the fellowship that we're having is exhorting one another. It's an encouragement. When I walked the, the lobby this morning and I said hello to so many people and had breakfast with my wife out there, I just was like so happy and thrilled to be among a group of believers So we're exhorting one another, and we're commanded to do that. Then we talked about a couple truths last week, and I want to share this truth because I want to provide some clarification. Um, One of the truths I said was, unbelief, not sin, keeps us from entering God's rest. Unbelief, not sin, keeps us from entering God's rest. I had a man come up to me after the first service last week and said, well, I don't know that, I don't know, I see what you're trying to say, Said, but sin does separate us from God, and I said, yes, it does. I said, so let me clarify. Unbelief, Jesus' death doesn't do anything for that. There's no atonement for unbelief. If you don't believe, then then there's no way for him to atone for that sin because you don't believe. You're not trusted in him. Sin, however, Jesus can atone for. Now, if you don't believe, then the atonement doesn't mean anything. But if you believe and you put your faith and your trust in Christ... His atonement will take care of the sin. So what I was trying to say is, is this is really what the author was saying, is that unbelief is what killed them in the, in the wilderness. They, they hardened their hearts. They, they did not acknowledge God as God. And that's what's happening in our culture and our world today. Romans 1 is happening right in front of our eyes. We are not acknowledging God as God. We're denying Him and saying we are not going to accept that. We want what we want, and we're going to live how we want to live, and we do not acknowledge Him as an authority over our life. And so unbelief, not sin, keeps us from entering God's rest. And what I was trying to say last week is that is good news for us because we all come as sinners. <laughs> I come as your pastor, as a sinner, and I can be atoned for in the death and resurrection of Christ if I put my trust there, but if I have unbelief, He, he can't atone for that because I don't believe. I don't even believe in Him. And so that's a picture of what's been taking place here at the end of chapter 3. So I want to kind of, that's what the, the psalmist, or excuse me, that's what the, the writer here of Hebrews is trying to say as David is, is quoting, as he's quoting David here. So now today we're going to look at this word rest um, because it's referenced multiple times here in the text here in chapter 4. And so I want to define rest for you a little bit. We saw last week that, that he was saying, they won't enter my rest. He swears, and we're going to see this quoted many times again. Psalm 95 quoted uh, verse 11 when the author says, you know, I swore that in my wrath I will not let them enter my rest. They will not enter my rest. What, what is that? Well, it, it's figuratively the promised land, right, that they weren't going to allow to enter the promised land. But ultimately this word rest means that they weren't going to be able to enter into God's rest, into salvation, They're not going to have salvation. They're not going to have the rest that only God can provide. Forgiveness and all that is wrapped up in salvation. They're not going to have that because they they don't believe. You see, it's, it's real simple. You're not going to have rest from your sin because you don't believe. Because Christ could atone for the sin... But you don't believe, and so if your heart is hard and you don't believe, you will not have rest. And so as I use this term rest, because as the text uses it, it's going to be several times where it's going to be talking about rest. And and you could probably interchange that most of these times with with salvation. And so I'll try and walk you through it as we go through that. And so the question is, how did we get into this position where we need rest? As I remind you last week, in the Garden of Eden, there was perfect rest. There was perfect peace. They walked with God. They were at peace with God. There was a rest. They were they were living in God's rest in the garden. It was a wonderful time, no guilt, no shame. But then we, humanity, decided to step out from the rest. We thought we knew better that we could do this on our own, and that's what the serpent tempted with. God is holding out on you. He knows that if you do this, if you eat from the tree of you know, good and evil, the tree of knowledge, you will be like him. And so we thought, well, hey, that sounds good to me. And so they ate, they sinned, they realized they were naked, sin came, they got removed from the garden because now they've sinned against a holy God and we moved away from the rest. And so what we're going to see and what the author's going to kind of unpack for you is that God is going to make that offer of rest available again. And now it's available in Christ. It's available for those who hope in Christ in the Old Testament, they don't know that it's going to be Jesus, but they know a Savior is supposed to be coming. They know God is going to do something, and they're hoping in that. And that's how God is going to save them. They're going to rest in his work. We now look back on the, old te- back on the, 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 um, the resurrection, the crucifixion, and, and we are putting trust and faith in what we know what happened, right? But everyone that is, enters the rest... Old Testament, New Testament, enters into salvation, into eternity with God, is doing it through Christ. The promise of Christ or the looking back at the work of Christ, okay? So that's kind of this idea of rest. So that brings me to your big idea this morning. As the author here in Hebrews, in these 13 verses, talks about rest, the primary point, I think, of his text here is that God invites us to rest in him. What the author is saying is, he's, he's been saying to these people, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. He's preeminent. He's sovereign over all things. Your, your family, your ancestors died because their hearts were hard. But even now, God is still inviting you to rest in him. Even now, even after all of that, he's inviting you to rest in him. So let's pick it up. We've got 13 verses to get through here. Let's, let's dive in. Hebrews 4, verse 1, therefore, now this is that word again, he's building on what he talked about last week and and all of this, and so he's, he's just reminding, like, if your hearts are hard, do all these things, but there is a way, and so he says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The first thing I want to point out to you is that in many of these texts, and I'm going to bring them out, several of them, at least four or five of them, there's always a warning in his text. There's a warning. He's saying, look, if you fail, lest you fail th- to reach it, unless you fail to believe, lest you harden your heart. Over and over and over, what you're going to see here in the author is doing is saying, look, he's, he's just reminding them, guys, this is serious business. I'm warning you, don't do this. Don't fail to believe. Because remember, these were Jews who were wrestling whether they should believe in this Messiah or not. They were They were kind of Straddling the fence a little bit. Like, okay, I know he says he is. I kind of believe it. And they were, he, the author's just saying, no, you need to believe it. If you do not believe, you will perish in the wilderness, just like our grandfathers did. You will perish, right? And so this is really where he's trying to get to it across here, all right? But then he says, he says, therefore, while the promise of entering rest still stands. Now, there's the good news. So the warning is right after that. But the good news is the promise of rest still stands. What, what, is, what is the author here saying? He says, even after all of the disobedience of our people, and not just in the wilderness, Israel was disobedient over and over and over again. Their hearts were hard. Even now we see in the New Testament when Jesus comes, the, the Pharisees, their hearts were hard, right? He calls them whitewashed tombs. I mean, their just hearts are hard. Today, we, we live in a world where many of our hearts are hard. We are so distracted and, and so enticed by the lust of the world and all of the things of the world. Our hearts are hard towards God, right? And, and that's the struggle that, that they face, and this is really why he's saying, but, but even with all of that, even with all the rebellion of mankind, what the author is trying to encourage him here, he says, but the promise of entering the rest still stands. It's still available. Even though we've done all that, even though we've rebelled against the holy God, and we deserve death, it's still open. The invitation is still there enter now. I mean, he's, we're going to see this unpacked, but this is his, I mean, these are his brethren. I believe this is probably a Jewish writer. I can't say that for sure, but he's, he's really reaching out to his brethren and say, guys, do not perish like our ancestor did. The offer of rest is still there. And so what do we see the, the first real thing? I'm just going to give you many points as we get through this, just to kind of really to hold on to, is that God's rest is still available. Now, practically for us, what, is, us, what does that mean? Well, for you and I, I don't care how old you are <laughs> um, and what kind of life you've lived. The offer of rest is available. I don't care how much you've sinned. I don't care what kind of sin you've had. The offer of rest is available. Jesus is making that available. God the Father is making rest available for you. And we're going to really unpack what that looks like. But right now I just want you to understand that it's available. This beautiful thing that God is offering to you is available. Even though all of that's already happened. Even though you have sinned all of your life maybe, and you've lived in a rebellion to God, even now, that's available. Okay? So remember that as we keep working through this. It's available. Verse 2. The author says, The good news came to us just as to them. What's the good news? That the offer is still available. Right? That's the good news. The gospel, that Jesus has made a way for us to be forgiven, that God is, we can trust in his works. Right? For the good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. All right? Warning, they didn't listen. They weren't united in faith. Another warning. He's just making it very clear. He's saying, it's like you're heading to the cliff and there's multiple signs, you know? Cliff, 1,000 miles ahead or 1,000 meters ahead, 500 meters ahead, 200 meters ahead. Ten meters ahead, there's a cliff. He's just reminding them over and over and over and over. And and why do you think an author does that? Well, let me ask you this. Why do you repeatedly tell your children what not to do? Because you know that their flesh wants to do it. And so you're just trying to build into them all of these warning signs. Say, don't do that. Don't do this. You know that's not going to be helpful. You know that's not going to be good for you, right? It's because we are stubborn, and, and so we just need to be reminded. And so when we see an author repeat something, it's just because our hearts, our tendency to lean the way we want to lean. And so the writer here is just reminding them. There's a warning. There's a warning. I love it how Jesus kind of puts it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter, 14, chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. He says this. This is Jesus speaking now. And, and he's speaking to a... Um, Obviously, to, to the Jews or to the people, and, and their hearts, they're having trouble believing. He's told them parables, but they're not believing. They're not, they're not understanding. And so here's what he says. It says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, I would heal them. What is he saying? Now think about this. We just got done with the Gospel of John a few months ago. Jesus repeatedly does demonstrations of miracles so that they can see. They can see his power. They can see who he is. He repeatedly tells them who he is. He repeatedly tells them, I am the bread of life. I am the truth. No one can come to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. He just repeatedly tells them, right? I am living water. I'm it. I am it. And yet, what does he say? Even though they see, they don't see. Even though they can hear, they'll never perceive. Their hearts are dull. Their hearts are dull. But then he basically says there, but if they would hear, and if they would listen and see, I would and if they would turn their hearts, I would heal them. The offer is available. But because their hearts are hard and they don't believe, I, I, can't, I'm not gonna, I can't heal them. I cannot atone for that. I cannot atone for unbelief. And so this morning, I'm just reminding you that while this offer is available, this rest is available to you, do not let your hearts be hard. You've heard. You have seen let me, let me keep reading here. I'm gonna, now I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. The next two verses here. Because now Jesus kind of shifts gears. He says, but blessed are your eyes. Now he's speaking now to the believers here. He says, blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. What is Jesus saying? He says, the prophets longed to see what you see. Now he's speaking probably to his apostles here and and to those that have come to know him, and they're saying they've longed to see this, and they did not, weren't able to. You have the opportunity to see me, to see my gifts, to to hear my words, to touch me, to be with me. And yet there was many righteous, and even the prophets longed for this, and they did not get an opportunity to do this. And so what, what do I what did I how does that make you feel? I mean, one, I just want to remind you that we get to see it all. Why while, while we don't get to to touch him as, as John would say in 1 John, you know, I, I we're able to touch him and handle him. No, but we get to to handle him in, in his word. We get to see everything that God has made available for us. We get to see every miracle, every, every parable, every poetry piece, every piece of prophecy, of prediction, everything that's gonna come true in the future, it's all unpacking there, right? It's all there for us to see all of it. We get to see the resurrection, the different accounts of it, we get to see all of it, the ascension, the glorified body, the promise of the resurrection that Paul talks about in Philippians, we get to see it all. And so what all I'm saying is the prophets longed to see what we see, and yet we see it. And so what the author is really saying is, don't not harden your heart. If, this, if God is showing you all of this, how can you reject this? And yet we know that we do. People do. I have friends and family that reject this. I don't want you to reject this, and that's the warning. That's what the author is trying to say. And so what's the What's kind of the point here of all this? The offer of rest is available to everyone. Now, remember what rest is. Salvation. It's it's entering into the rest of God. The offer of rest is available to everyone, but only those who respond in faith will enter the rest. So it's available to everyone, but only if you respond in faith. And so now it's that idea of faith and believing, right? So the believing is the understanding. The faith is saying, oh, I trust in it. Right? So I believe and I have faith. I, I trust in what I'm believing and what I understand, and I believe in it. I believe that Christ is sufficient for my, for my sins and he's going to atone for me. I don't, I'm not saved by works. I believe in that. It's going to be his atonement, and I trust in that, and I believe in that. It's going to change the way I live. Now, that promise is available to everyone, right? We, we look there at the verse one, it says, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, it's available but not everyone will have faith. Not everyone will believe. Hearing the gospel is not sufficient for salvation. Millions of people have heard the gospel and said, no, I don't want it. It's, it's not what I want. Okay. Our job is to keep proclaiming the gospel over and over and over again. So some of you come and you probably say, you know, man, I think I heard Raleigh talk about the gospel last week. Well, good. You're going to hear me talk about the gospel for as long as the Lord gives me breath. Because I believe that there are people even sitting here in this room today that have not said yes to the gospel, that have not been born again yet, right? And for those of you that have, you need to be reminded, you need to be exhorted, I need to be exhorted to keep believing because hearing the gospel is not sufficient. The good news must be acted upon. It must be a way of how we live. Hebrews chapter 4, second part of verse 3. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. So there's this promised rest, right? The good news, and we who believe have entered it. Now he's saying, not only is it available to us, some of us have entered in it. And the way that we've entered in it is that we've believed. But notice what he says after that. He says, as he has said, now he's talking about David. He's going back to the ninth, Psalm 95, verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, he's quoting, God is speaking here, they shall not enter my rest. Warning, no faith, no belief. Yes, we've entered, but others will not enter. Others will not enter. Since we have entered that rest, then he seems to say, well, the rest that that no one will enter, or that people will not enter, these swore people will not enter. He's just painting a picture of the two. By the fact that he's saying people won't enter my rest if you don't believe, the opposite is true. The contrast is true. that people that do believe will enter the rest. And so the author is just saying, for we who have believed enter the rest. But once again, there's a third warning. If you do not believe, God in his wrath has said that you will not enter his rest. So once again, what do we see? To enter God's rest, you must believe. You must believe. You must, now remember, believe means acting upon Believing in, trusting in, having faith in, you must act upon it, right? It must be evident in your life somehow. As we, we say many times, you can't come to Christ and stay the same. You know? it, it's, there's got to be a change in your heart. Scripture says you've been given a new spirit, a, a new heart. You've been transformed, and so that, that needs to be seen in your life. That's the fruit that Scripture talks about. All right, goes on in chapter 4, verse 3. Now, I hope I can explain this. this is, I think it's the next few points here are really important. I think a beautiful picture. It says, although his works, this is God's works now, although his works were finished from the foundations of the world. So God created for seven days, and his work of creation was finished. Right, That's what he's saying. So although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, so he's saying God has, has finished that. For he has somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way. I don't know if that was meant to be kind of like a bit of a, just a a funny thing that he was saying, or if he's just the way he speaks. Like, obviously, they know where this was spoken of. It was, if it was in the Torah, it was in the beginning. It was in Genesis, right? For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. <laughs> Warning, right? He's once again saying God has done something. He's created all things, and he's rested in the Sabbath, in the seventh day. We're going to talk about that. But there will be people that will not enter the rest. There will be people that won't enter the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. And we're going to, I'll try and connect this for you, right? Right? And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That was the Sabbath. So when he completed all things on the sixth day, he rests on the seventh day, and he rests. He rests from his works. He's not working. And what does he tell, his, what does he tell the people? You shall rest as well on the seventh day. And what are they resting from? Their work. In fact, he even says, your animals don't even, shouldn't even work. You should rest. The Sabbath was made for us. Right? In fact, Jesus talks to his disciples about that. He says, the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest was made for us. And I'm going to show you how this picture is really a, a bigger picture. So what's, what's, the, what's kind of the takeaway, the point here? God has provided a picture of his perfect rest in the Sabbath. So, as God, even in creation, as, as God is taking them into the promised land and He tells them, I want you to enter my rest, and, and the, the promised land is a picture of this eternal rest, right? What the author here is saying is, is that picture has been in creation from the very beginning. That even in God's creation, He's created this understanding of that there will be rest for His people, rest from their work. And we think only rest from our physical work. In other words, labor, right? And we, and we do. We need rest for that. But really, there's a, there's a much more spiritual meaning here as well. He's saying there'll be rest for your work. You will not have to work for salvation, right? And God has provided this beautiful picture here. Let's pick it up in verse 6 and 7. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it. So that's good news because he's saying, look, it's not, the door's not closed there's still more to enter, right? There's still more to come. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. We've already covered that. Those who received the same message failed to believe, and so they did not enter. Warning, another warning. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, In the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, I want to take you back to David again now. David is reminding his people in his time when he wrote this psalm, don't harden your hearts, believe in what the Lord is doing. He doesn't know about Jesus yet. He doesn't understand all of that. He knows that God has promised to deliver them, promised to do something. And he's saying, don't harden your hearts to trusting God because our ancestors did. And look what happened. They perished. And so now the author is just picking up on that and and reminding his own readers here in the first century, do not harden your hearts. David reminded his folks, do not harden your hearts. And I am here today to tell you, do not harden your hearts towards the gospel. Do not harden your hearts towards Christ. He goes on, today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There is the warning. Again, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. This idea that today, right, today some of you have an appointment for lunch with your mother or with your children. It is an exact invitation. It's specific for a time. It's not open-ended. It's, it's today because, you know what, lunch is at your mom's or wherever. It's not going to be available tomorrow, is it? It's available today at 2 o'clock. And if you're lucky, I'll be done by then. You can go, okay? It's available today. And so, and so what are we seeing here? There's an invitation. You have been invited to come for lunch. You've been invited. God is inviting you to enter his rest today. I, don't miss this. He's inviting you to enter his rest today. You say, well, okay. Well, I can. I'm, I'm 18, I've got a lot of living to do, and I'll enter the rest when I'm 30 or 40, after I have kids, after I get married. Well, you know, maybe. But that's not the invitation. The invitation is today. It's, it's, the lunch is not available tomorrow, maybe. It's available today at 2 o'clock. Breakfast was served today. It's not going to be available next week. It's not going to be available tomorrow for you. God is saying, David is saying, through, the, through this, It's available today. My rest is available today. You can enter into it today, and I'm inviting you. I'm personally inviting you to enter. What's the next thing, though, that I would expound upon this is that God's promise of rest is available today, but not tomorrow. It's available today, but not tomorrow. And you say, well, Pastor Raleigh, I I know that I can come to Jesus tomorrow. Uh, How do you know that? Because you don't know that tomorrow's going to come. You say, well, tomorrow comes, it always comes. Not for everybody. This week, two people in our congregation have passed away. One completely unexpected. Tomorrow is not promised. The offer is not an open ended offer. Today is the offer. That offer is not for tomorrow. Now, tomorrow, what? It will be today. But we're not there. And so that offer is not for tomorrow, it's for today. And so if you do not come today, I don't know that the offer will be available tomorrow. Maybe it will be. That's up to God. Maybe, maybe everybody that's going to enter the rest is going to be fulfilled today. And it's over. Maybe you won't see tomorrow. Maybe because of sin and the hardness of your heart today, you will not enter tomorrow because your heart will be hard. Because I'm telling you, they were delivered out of Egypt. The Red Sea was split. They were fed manna. There was a pillar of of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night, and, and all of this took place, and yet they hardened their hearts. And you would think, well, I wouldn't have done that. No, because when we delay, when we continually delay believing, when we continue to delay and harden our hearts, callousness builds up. And it is hard to penetrate that heart. And as Jesus said there in Matthew 13, our hearts hearts are dull. You could probably use the word calloused. The promise of rest is available today, but not tomorrow. Not the promise. Hebrews chapter chapter four, verse eight through 10. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So the idea there is he's saying, look, if Joshua could have given them rest, he could have got them to the promised land and and given them eternal rest, which he couldn't, he didn't, right? Then Then God wouldn't have spoken about another one. If the promised land that Joshua led them across the Jordan and got them into, if that would have been the rest that God was speaking of, he wouldn't have referenced a rest for later on, and this is this eternal rest. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest. So he's saying, so... If that's not the rest, if going to the promised land is not the rest, there remains a Sabbath rest. And we're going to tear into this a little bit. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the rest of the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We're going to really spend some time here. This is, this is a beautiful picture of what God has done. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. It says, On the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Once again, God is created. He's resting on the seventh day. He's not doing any work. He tells his people, do not work on the seventh day. Rest from your work, okay? It's a physical rest he's referencing. But it has eternal spiritual significance. Because when God builds this, what he is saying is, is that there is going to be a Sabbath rest for my people. Not just on Sunday, or was on Saturday, and now we do it on Sunday. There's going to be eternal Sabbath rest. I've done all the work, and there's a rest for eternity, and it's me, right? Now, where do we see this again, though? Because, see, remember, we stepped out of that rest. We, we, we decided that that rest wasn't, it's not what we wanted. We, we, we were resting in the garden, but we wanted sin, and so we stepped out. We stopped taking rest even on the Sabbath, right? We, we used that. And so what do we see? God comes around later, thousands of years later. And what does he do? John chapter 19, verse 30. Here is is Jesus is, is hanging on the cross. He's being crucified, right? He's just moments away from his death, passing. And what does he say? When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was saying, I've done the work that my father sent me to do. It's over. I'm finished. It's day six. I'm done. The work is done and now I'm resting. And I'm gonna make it available for anybody who wants to rest, to rest in me. Here it is again. The available gift of rest is available through Christ. God has made it available again today. Here it is. It's in Christ now. So what's the point? Follow me here. In the Sabbath rest, we rest from our works and rest in his work. Now I'm talking about earning salvation. In Christ, when we rest, it's not just a physical rest that we're getting in the Sabbath rest. We're getting an eternal rest. We're getting a rest in our salvation from our works. Think about the Old Testament. They were working for their salvation to obey the law, to do the Ten Commandments, to to adhere to everything that they were doing. And they did it perfectly almost. But what was missing? They didn't love the Lord. They got all the, they they dotted all the I's, crossed the T's, made sure that their shoes were shined, everything was right, but they didn't love the Lord. Unbelief. That was missing. And, And what what? What God is saying is, is, look, I can't atone for unbelief. So he sends Jesus. Now Jesus is going to let us rest from that work. No more will we have to to do all of those things to, to get to salvation. We just need to continue to love the Lord and trust in Christ. Jesus makes that available. The Sabbath is Jesus. He's the Sabbath. We enter into him. We enter into the Sabbath rest. We enter into Christ. And when we do, we're given rest. From our works. What do you mean? Because I could tell you that in, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that, that we, are, we are created for works, right? To do good works. Yes, we are. But we're not working to get salvation. You can rest from that now, Jesus is saying. You, you don't need to work for it. You don't need to lay your hands on those animals anymore. You don't need to do all those things. I've come and I've been the perfect sacrifice. I have atoned for it. I've fulfilled the law perfectly. I've done all the work. You rest in me now. Now, if you do that, there are works for us to do, but they're not stressful works. It's, work of, it's a work of joy. It's a work of, of just living out our life in, in a sanctifying way and to, to bring in honor and glory. But we don't, we're not working for our salvation. I'm not working because I want God to love me. Now, I will tell you as your pastor, I still go there some days. I still think, man, I Lord, I need to earn this. I need to, I need to do this. And boy, it was really helpful for me when I was studying this passage and the Lord saying, no, Raleigh, you're in, you're in the Sabbath rest because you rested my, my son. You, don't, you, don't, you can rest from your works, Raleigh. You do the work because you love me, but you can rest in the work because the work is Christ. It's in him. In Sabbath rest, which is Christ, we rest from our works and we rest in his work, the work of Christ. We no longer trust in our works. When we begin to work and rest in our works and justify our life by our works, we're resting in our works. And that is not what Christ has come, that is not the gospel. That goes back to Galatians when he says, you know, when the Jews, the Judaizers say, no, you can become a Christian, but you gotta get circumcised first. You gotta do this, you gotta do that, there's works. And what Christ comes along and says, and Paul says, no, 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 we're resting in Christ alone, not in works. Don't miss that this morning. So, as we read Scripture and we're reading through and studying, I think it's very helpful to sometimes have a a little note card that we kind of ask ourselves some questions. So, um, like, what is this about? Why does it say this? And what's the... What's the result here? What's the point of all this, right? And it helps us the way we think through things. And so here the author's been saying all this, right? It says there's a Sabbath rest for people and whoever enters the rest will also be rest from uh, their works as God did from his. And then it says, kind of, so what? It's kind of, he's answering now, so what, the question. And then he says, let us therefore, based on all of that, based on what he's done, he's created the Sabbath rest in Christ, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. (laughs) I mean, like, If That's happened, and that's really from the foundations of the world that that God has shown this picture of a perfect rest in Christ, the sixth day or the seventh day resting, and then he's in Christ, and it's finished, and he's worked, and this Sabbath rest, and it's in him. It's the picture of the promised land, and now we understand that it is in Christ. If that is the case, let us therefore enter, strive to enter that rest. That's what he's asking for so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, so that no one will fall in the wilderness like they did with our ancestors and, and not believe. Let's enter into Christ. This idea of striving to enter that rest, it's this idea of, of being, it's not workspace, it's, it's a diligence of, of making sure that we're striving to wait, we see him clearly, to study his word, to be in his word, to exalt in him, to extol him to be in the Scripture, to strengthen our faith that God gives us. That's where, and that's where this idea of extolling comes along. We encourage one another. We, we, we just, just, every ministry that we should be about here, at folks, at the Ridge, is about teaching each other how to study the Scripture more. Everything we do, from children's ministry to high school ministry to men's ministry to women's ministry to hope ministry, it's all about being in the Word and saying, how can we know better that this is true? How can we understand what God is telling us? That's the ministry of the church. It's the ministry of sharing the gospel, the text of scripture, learning it, diving into it, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it. That's the the hope. That's what gives us assurance. That's what striving looks like. Not on having a bunch of great programs. Look, I love programs sometimes, and, and there are things that we do and I really enjoy it. But the work of the church is to help people understand the scripture. That's the work of the church. And sometimes we think in the Western church that we have to do all these programs because that's going to attract people because Scripture really is, you know, people aren't going to understand it. It's going to be boring. And Well, you know, that's up to God. We, we just exalt Him and do our best to be able to explain the Scripture by His grace. We hopefully get it right, and, and then we let God do His work. So what do we see here? Striving means dying to self-righteousness, which gives rest. Striving means practically dying to self-righteousness. In other words, it's not saying I can do this on my own. It's not saying that I've justified myself. I've done all of these things, and I can stand before God by myself. No, that's a self-righteousness. That's a self-righteousness. I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed and I've said, why do you want to get baptized? And I said, well, you know, I I've always wanted to get baptized, and, and I'll say, well, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. And I said, why do you think you'll go to heaven? Well, I've been good. Um, I've, I've attended church. I love people. I love God. Okay? Okay? Well, I've, you know, I've, I've tried to really be good. I've really, that's a self-righteous attitude. That's striving to justify yourself. That, that's not resting in Christ's work. That's not. That is, that's unbelief. That's not trusting. That doesn't mean we're not, we shouldn't do good things. Don't hear that. We should live holy as God is holy. We should strive for that. That should be our pleasing act to him. And he's created good works for us to do, as Paul says in Ephesians. All right, last two verses. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. We could spend a, a whole message on that probably. The, the, but really, I think what the author's trying to say is look, the Lord knows you. His word cuts to the heart. He knows every intention, every thought, every thing that's going through your head, every, every intention that you didn't act on, but you, you hid it, you suppressed it, every secret that you've told. He knows it all. He, he knows it all. The Word of God cuts to the core. It just cuts to the core. Al Mohler, president of uh, Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary, in one of his um, um, books that kind of expounds on, on, on the book of Hebrews here, one of his commentaries, he says it this, and I quote from him. He says, when we approach the Scripture with a humble heart, it is not we who read Scripture. It is Scripture that reads us. Scripture untangles the human heart and unearths the sin like no other book can. Only God's Word can do that. When we approach Scripture, it, it does a work in us. It reads us like no other book can. It defines and, and every secret is made known when we come before the Lord in Scripture. It's a powerful thing, and that's really what the author is trying to say here. He's exalting Scripture. He's saying, this is true. All these things I've been saying, I've been quoting you from Psalm 95. This this is true. It's going to pierce your hearts. It's going to be true. And then what does he say right after that? He says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Notice that he says we're all naked we're back to the garden. See, there was a day when we were at rest and we were naked and for God and we were not ashamed. We were at perfect rest. And now in our nakedness, we have shame. And what he's saying here says, huh, but all of us are naked and exposed in our shame. And we will give an account to him. What does that mean to give an account? See, As someone who has put faith and belief in Christ, who's resting in the Sabbath rest, who's entered into the Sabbath rest, when we stand before God, we will not have to give an account of our life. Not not the way that someone who hasn't believed. Because my sin is hidden in Christ. It is covered by Christ. Christ will give an account of his life, and I'm hidden in it. And so when he comes to the Father and he says, the Father looks at the son he says, "Well done, son. Who's behind you? That's Raleigh. I got him. It's good. I, he doesn't see my sin because I've believed God is, Jesus is atoned for me. He's, I'm in the Sabbath rest. I'm in him. I, I don't need, I can rest from my works. I'm not, I'm not trusting my works anymore. I'm trusting His works. And the Father says, "Well done." Now think about that the other way. You come before the Father, and you do not have, you're not in the Sabbath rest. You do not have Christ, and you come before the Father. How do you think that's going to look? Tell me why you sinned. How are you going to atone for your sin, Raleigh? Uh, Death. Eternal separation. Unless you can show me that you can atone for it somehow, I can't. I can't justify all the things I've done. I could make excuses. I'm without excuse because there was a Sabbath rest made available to me. And I decided willfully not to enter that Sabbath rest. Today, you may be deciding, I don't want to enter that rest. I don't need Jesus in my life. I can handle it. Well, I'm just telling you, the author is saying that someday you will stand if you do not come to repentance, if you do not do this, you will stand before God and you will atone for yourself. And that atonement will mean eternal death because you can't atone for your sin before a holy, righteous God. But the beautiful thing is is that God has made it away and it's still available. That's the beautiful part of this whole passage is it is still available. The promise of his rest is still available to enter into. So what's the last point before we get to the takeaway? Those outside of God's rest will stand on their own before God. If you are outside of God's rest, you will stand on your own before God. I've told this many, I don't know, a long time ago probably. One time we did communion. And um, we, we did a little differently, and we just did something a little different. We made a little voting booth back here almost, looks like it. And you went in the curtain and um, behind the curtain and you could draw the curtain and you got to take communion all by yourself. And I don't know that that's really a biblical way to do communion because we're supposed to be as a family, but it was an interesting thing that we did. And so we're in line kind of and, and, um, you know, we got some music playing and we're all kind of praying and getting our hearts right. and, And I'm standing there with my wife and Terry and And she's getting ready to go in. And I'm just praying about myself, my own heart, and, and getting my heart right and trying to confess anything that I know I have in my heart before I go in and just be alone with God in there. And all of a sudden, Terry goes in behind the curtain. And I thought, I can't be there with her. I cannot argue before God why she should be saved, why she should be forgiven. Only Jesus can be there with her. Because, see, I can't do anything for her. I can't atone for her sin. I can't justify her sin. I can't make it right. Only Christ can make it right. And, man, I began to cry because I, I got this picture of, like, Raleigh, and what, what God really spoke to me that day, and not audibly, so, you know, I'm not here in the, but really in the spirit, I, I believe what the Lord said is, Raleigh, your responsibility is on this side of the curtain to pr- help prepare her and others for that side of the curtain. Hope them to get into the Sabbath rest in Christ so that when they get on that side of the curtain and when they take of the elements of the bread and the wine or the juice, it is Christ that they are trusting in, not their own works. So what's the takeaway today? True spiritual rest is only in Christ. True spiritual rest is only in Christ. There is rest. Today, you may go home. You may have a great, you know, home-cooked meal. You may sit out on the porch or get in your recliner, and you may have some really good temporal rest, right? You may fall asleep if there's golf on. You'll be, definitely be asleep Stephanie and I don't know if there's golf. Probably not. You, you'll be asleep, and you'll, you'll feel good, and you'll wake up, and you'll be rested, but that rest will fail, and, and anxiety will come again, and tiredness will come again, and age will come again, Because, see, that rest doesn't last. Only true spiritual rest in Christ will last. Next step. Next step as we get ready to send you guys out. Rest in the work of Christ and not your own works. That's really the point. That's really, I think, what the author is really trying to say here. An invitation has been made to enter into the rest. And the way that we do that is we rest in his work and not our own. That's, that's really the invitation. That's the dynamics of the invitation. And so, that being said, let me leave you with this passage, well known passage from Paul and found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So what's Paul saying? By grace, it's a gift. You don't work for it. Right? You don't work for it. Through faith, through belief. It's what we've just been talking about. Paul is just wrapping it up in two verses. We could, couldn't we have just jumped here and have been a lot easier, two verses, and instead of 13? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You're not trusting in your own works. That's what he's saying. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Now he's referring back to grace again. He's reminding them it's a gift. You need to be told more than once: it's grace, it's through faith. It's a gift, not a result of works. Now he's repeating it again. It's not a result of your works. This is not something of your own doing. It's not a result of works. So that no one may boast. We will never be able to stand before God and say, well, I earned my spot here. Never. You will come and you will bow and you will say, Lord, I am only here because of your saving grace in my life and the work of your son. And you are deserving of all glory for this moment in my life. That's it. There'll be no boasting. The only boasting there'll be is boasting in Christ and the work of the cross. So today, as you leave here, do not trust in your own works. Rest in the work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, today as we close out our service, Father, I pray that this truth that we've just been talking about that you so beautifully laid out in Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, how you've shown this the Sabbath rest, even in the foundation of your creation that you've made available. And then you showed the picture of it in the promised land, and and then you brought this finished work of Christ, and he rests from that work, and, and he makes it available, and he becomes our Sabbath rest. And Father, I thank you and praise you that that rest is available today. I don't know if it'll be available tomorrow for everyone, and so today I pray that you will do something in their hearts. That you will bring them and they will come to repentance. And you will make them a new creation in Christ Jesus because they have seen who you are and are overwhelmed by who you are. And they have surrendered their will. They've understood that their works are not worthy, but that your works are the only thing that will save them. Lord, I pray that you will do a work in their life today. You'll bring them from death to life and give them a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone and that they will begin to grow and glorify you and they will then be the heralder of that news to their friends and their neighbors so that they their friends and their neighbors do not harden their hearts, and that they too will have the opportunity to enter into your rest. Father, we praise you and we thank you today in Christ's name. Amen.: Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info@theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.